Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director at IFG. Well, we didn't see that one coming. Not yet. Anyway, Sturgeon has quit as Scotland's First Minister after more than eight formidable years in the role. So why has she gone? What does it mean for the SNP's quest for Scottish independence? And what might it mean for the UK's political map? It has also been a big week for Labour. Keir Starmer has announced that former leader Jeremy Corbyn will not be allowed to stand as a Labour candidate at the next election. And today, Thursday at the IFG, Yvette Cooper, the Shadow Home Secretary, declared that the government has broken the justice system and that Labour would deliver 13,000 new police officers and PCSOs as part of a wide-scale programme of reform. And then, of course, there's the government, which has been comparatively quiet this week. But as Westminster returns after recess on Monday, we'll preview what's coming up. Joining me in the studio throughout is Kath Haddon, making a welcome return to Inside Briefing (laughs) after too long away. Kath, how have you been spending your extended break? I assume you've been listening to lots of Think Tank podcasts. I have not. That was the part of the joy of it. Not that I don't like listening to our our podcast in particular. Um, But no, I took a bit of a break from... um, uh, too much politics watching uh, and also they don't let phones into spas so um, as I was in spas I couldn't listen to them or look at Twitter so sorry. Fair excuse and I'm delighted that today we're also joined by Jess Elgert the Deputy Political Editor at The Guardian. Hi Jess Hello, how are yeah. you? Yeah good thanks. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so I think there's only one place to start today, and that's the big news in Scotland. Um, and we're joined now, dialing in from his day off, thank you, um, by Akash Porn, the IFG's resident devolution expert and somebody who's been studying all the twists and turns in the Scottish independence drama. Akash, did you see this coming? Well, hi, Emma. Good to be on, um, even if, yes, I'm on my day off, but that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so did we see this coming? Did I see this coming? I think there's a sort of yes and no element to my answer. I mean, it certainly came as a surprise yesterday morning. Um, the news broke, um, it seems, with virtually nobody having had advance notice of it. There was no leaks earlier on about uh, any any possible move in that direction. Um, and it does genuinely sound from what Nicola Sturgeon says that she'd been wrestling with this question of how long she could go uh, go on in the role and only finally came to the decision that that this was the time to move on just the day before yesterday and 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 then announced it immediately. So in a sense, it did come out of the blue. But on the other hand, I mean, the last few months have certainly been very, very difficult, I think, for Nicola Sturgeon. There's been some signs that her authority in the party has been waning. The selection of uh, Stephen Flynn as Westminster SNP leader was was certainly seen as as a blow to her her control of of, of the the Westminster end of, of the party. The gender reform issue has obviously been pretty difficult and divisive for her party for her country. Um, and then there's also these. Um, allegations and an inquiry into party funding um, involving her husband loan to the party which has, has made for some sort of embarrassing headlines as well so I think you know there's been a, a maybe a realization that it was a matter of when rather than if and we now know the when as well as the if. Thanks Akash and um, Jess how big a moment is this? I think it's an it's an extraordinary moment um for maybe three reasons. Firstly, because Nicola Sturgeon is herself such a formidable politician, perhaps, you know, the most effective politician of the last 10 years. She certainly outlasted many of her detractors um, and has been 
you know, wonderfully effective in promoting her cause, a cause I think, you know, on the second point, which is now uh, probably diminished by her departure. It's very difficult to see that someone who can um, champion the cause of Scottish independence in quite the way that she did and, and, and maintain the kind of popularity that she has in Scotland. And I think what's what's a remarkable thing about the SNP in Scotland is that, you know, they've been in power for a very long time. Um, and yet, you know, she's still managed to make them seem like the insurgent party to not seem like the establishment. I think that that is something that would be very difficult to maintain, particularly with concerns about the health service, the economy, cost of living, you know, affecting all voters in Scotland. I think Labour's Anna Sawa now has this kind of amazing um, opportunity because he's the most now the most probably the most recognisable name in Scottish politics, leading a party, but also the one who is seen as the insur- as an insurgent now who has the most to gain. That I think hugely benefits Labour in Scotland, and on the third point has has a huge, you know, probably positive effect for Keir Starmer's party in winning a majority government at the next election. If they can capitalise on, you know, SNP disarray in Scotland, that will be super helpful to them. Yeah. And Akash touched on the kind of the timing of the decision. What do you make of that? Why do you think Sturgeon has quit now? Is it, you know, a building up of issues over time? Or is there something that you think has kind of pushed her to act immediately? I think that there's, I think everyone knew that there was at some point there was there was a there was going to have to be a Nicola Sturgeon succession plan what's I think surprising is that she seems to have left without that succession plan and and that there isn't um there is no obvious person to succeed her in place and no obvious plan for what comes next in a way it's 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 understandable she's done it now before this special conference that the SNP is holding on the future of independence and whether to use the next general election as a kind of de facto uh, referendum on independence which you know, is a is a controversial thing even within the SNP, and it has its detractors within the SNP, and it's something that the you know polling in the Scottish public seems to roughly tell us is not what people view it as because they want to vote on plenty of different issues in that election, um, and so you know, for her it would be it would be you know almost I guess, and she said this she said this in part of her reasoning that it would be almost disingenuous for for her to kind of lead into that conference if she didn't really have the intention of then seeing that policy through to the, to the next election i think you know pro- probably you know maybe people had made the assumption that she would lead the smp into yeah. the ne- next election and and then decide her future on the on on that basis but she's clearly decided that 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 needs a fresh pace and that she just doesn't have enough in the tank it's been a very punishing few months for her and that's before we even get started talking about the you know the gender uh, recognition r- rows in scotland and the toxicity that there has been around that debate, you know, how she's found herself, you know, very much floundering in, in interviews around that, the pressures on her, you know, on her personal life with her husband being investigated for a loan, on a, for a loan to the SNP. And other, you know, pressures as well of, of all of the things that politicians are facing up and down the country of, of cost of living, the economy, strikes, you know, there's all there's 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 lots of that has built up and Friends of hers, I think, have told our correspondents that they that she is she was and was very affected by the resignation of Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. That she saw that as quite a good role model of a way to leave political life if you felt like you didn't have enough 
more any more to give. Yeah, and there were certainly a lot of comparisons between the two when um, when Jacinta Ardern um, decided it was time to go. I mean, I think Sturgeon also talked a lot, didn't she, about the kind of the changing pressures on politicians and how you know how much greater that pressure has kind of become in the last few years. I mean, as you say, uh, you know, Sturgeon perhaps most associated with the SNP's kind of quest for independence had said, you know, that the next election will be a de facto kind of referendum on the question of independence. I mean, Akash, where do you think this leads to the question of independence now? And what routes are there left for the SNP with Sturgeon going? This whole idea of a de facto referendum, using a, a general election as a de facto referendum, I mean, I've always been quite sceptical of, of that. I think you, it's always been clear that no matter what the SNP might call it, a general election is a general election, and it's 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 it, it, the next UK general election will be a choice between prime ministers for many people. It will also be you know a choice between local candidates to to to, to um, decide on the composition of the House of Commons. A single party can't just declare it to be a referendum, and I think a lot of people realise that, including within her own party. So, I mean, in terms of the, you know, links to the timing point, what her going now, just a month and three days before the planned uh, special conference, at which I think initially her expectation would have been she would set out the vision, this is how we're going to campaign between now and 2024, this is how we will frame the election as, as a referendum, and um, this is how we'll take the cause of independence forward. But her party has not fallen behind that plan. There's been some open disagreement about whether that is the right strategy. There's been a suggestion maybe that they could use the next Scottish Parliament election instead as a as a de facto referendum, though that runs into the same problem, that it would not be that in the eyes of the other parties. And the legal position remains that without Westminster agreement, there's not that much the Scottish government can do to make a referendum happen. And that's why there's others, uh, Stuart MacDonald from the SNP who've, who've, and, and others who've suggested really the only route to independence is to play the long game and, and try to build up support for independence over a long period to the point where it's clear that there's a a supermajority, shall we say, in favour of independence, 60% plus, and eventually then the UK government of the day will will be forced to recognise the, the the settled will of the Scottish people. But we're clearly not at that point now because the part the country is still around 50-50 split on, on, on the issue. And Akash, you mentioned some of the other figures in the SNP. Jesse, you talked about the lack of a kind of succession plan in place for Sturgeon. I mean, Sturgeon and Alex Salmon before her have essentially dominated the kind of front line of SNP politics for years and years now. I mean, is there any obvious successor? Jess, who are the kind of the runners and riders? Yeah, I mean, that is, and and I think that the also this kind of fragmentation in different positions held within the SNP is also kind of relatively new or relatively new to, to to those of us in Westminster who always sort of viewed the SNP group as someone who were who were supremely disciplined, very much to the line, very close network, especially the ones elected in 2015. And that is absolutely not the case now. And as we've just seen with Ian Blackford being deposed as, as Westminster leader, there are people being talked about who all have kind of pros and cons. Angus Robertson, the former Westminster leader, he's probably the favourite, but probably that's also because he's got big name, you know, bigger name recognition. And the other person who's being being talked about is Kate Forbes, the sort of young rising star of the SNP. Uh, she's potentially seen as Sturgeon's 
pick, although she's, you know, Nicola hasn't made that particularly clear, but she's also, you know, reasonably young. She's she's on maternity leave at the moment. And she is, I think that there will be question marks over some of her views on some kind of the progressive issues that the SNP has championed, including things like equal marriage um, and on gender rights, because hers, hers, hers are different, to, to put it one way. So we could see a, a surprise candidate come through the middle, but they have a lot of work to do in terms of establishing themselves with the Scottish electorate. And Akash, what, talk us through the kind of the technicalities. What's the actual process for choosing the next first leader? So there's two phases to this, of course. I mean, first of all, the SNP will select a replacement to Nicola Sturgeon as party leader. Then the Scottish Parliament will formally vote on a on its nominee to become first minister, who then uh, formally is is appointed, of course, by the king. Uh, as far as the the first part of that's concerned. Um, the the party's national executive committee is understood to be meeting today to decide upon the timetable and and other kind of technical requirements uh, that will have to be followed by the candidates. Uh, for example, the number number of nominations they'll need to get from party members to reach the uh, shortlist for um, in the in the leadership contest. I mean, according to the the party constitution. A candidate only needs to get a hundred nominations from party members. We're talking about, of course, not, oh, wow. not MSPs or MPs. So the bar is very low, and that kind of reflects the fact that the there hasn't been a contested leadership election since two thousand four, when the party was much much smaller. You know, it had a huge surge of membership around and after two thousand fourteen. So, I mean, if they were to stick to that rule, you might see. Lots of candidates making the making the shortlist. So there's there's a possibility they may, they may try to change that. Um, and then in terms of the timings, well, the big question is: Can they get the process complete in time to hold the um, special conference on on 19th of March? That seems very short. Uh, that that doesn't seem very long at all to to, to wrap up that full process when there's no as we've heard, clear front runner. So it might be that that party conference gets pushed back. Um, Stephen Flynn, the Westminster leader, has has called for that to happen already this morning. Um, so that's certainly one option. And then they could take a bit longer to have this fuller debate about independent strategy, but not only that, about uh, what the, the what the Scottish government should be doing more generally. Um, so we'll find out more about that quite soon, I think. And then once the party has completed its process, presumably at that point, Nicola Sturgeon would would formally hand in her resignation, so to speak, as First Minister. And then, yes, there's a process set out in, in the Scotland Act and in Scottish Parliament standing orders by which um, MSPs vote uh, on on who to nominate to become first minister, and I mean, in theory, other party leaders could put their names forward at that point. That's happened in the past, but in reality, SNP, assuming the the cooperation agreement with the Scottish Greens holds up as we expect it will, um, has a majority. So their party leader then would be um, would 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 be voted for as next first minister. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Akash. Kath, let's, um, let's zoom out for a moment now. You're our in-house historian mm-hmm. at IFG. How is history going to judge Nicola Sturgeon? Uh, well, historians love qualifications, so probably uh, very successful in many respects, not successful in other respects. Um, but more seriously, I mean, it's partly going to be what we talked about today. She's a formidable politician who has achieved some great elect- le- electoral results. Obviously, a lot of criticism of her around some of domestic policy, particularly health and education handling. But I think, I mean, the big question is historians, they get the longer view. So a lot of it's going to depend on what happens next. If you end up in a situation where, yes, Labour makes big inroads back into um, Scottish constituencies um, and that changes the fortunes of SNP, independence is off the table. The SNP, you know, um, struggle to understand where they stand now. Uh, all of those things are going to reflect on her period, uh, both for the success she had and the legacy that she left. On the other hand, if they find that they're in a transformed position, you know, she said she needed to get out of the way because it had become about her, mm-hmm. debates had polarised around her. So, yeah, if suddenly the SNP is transformed, they end up with a new leader who takes them on to independence in the years to come, then her legacy would look very different. So a lot of it is going to depend on, on what happens next. And what do you think this means for Labour? I mean, is this a watershed moment for them in the road to a general election? Um, I don't think so. I think last year it particularly was um, when we were you know, looking at polling in terms of being a potentially a much closer general election, obviously, At the moment, on current trajectory, Labour aren't dependent on Scotland for getting a majority. um, And most of the sort of key battlegrounds, I think they've got like three in Scotland. Most of them are south of the the border. Um, Where it's, uh, you know, Starmer in particular was very vulnerable was actually around the way in which the Conservatives could attack them on that, talking about... um, you know, him getting into government, being very dependent on Sturgeon, therefore the influence that Sturgeon could have on a future um, Labour leadership, that on Labour governments, those kind of things are somewhat off the off mm-hmm. the table, um, potentially. But um, I don't think at the stage we're at, um, like I say, obviously, it, it could be a long way to go before a general election, so it could all change. Um, so it wasn't quite um, as a a sort of a key aspect of, of Labour's strategy for getting into to government as it had been like a year ago. Brilliant. Thanks, Kath. OK, I think we're going to move on from the SNP now and turn our attention to Labour. Labour have been using the recess week to make some pretty significant announcements and we'll come on to the big statement on Jeremy Corbyn shortly. But let's start with Yvette Cooper's speech at IFG. I think Jess, Kath and I were all listening in and she finished talking about half an hour ago at the time of recording. Here's a clip. So preventing crime, keeping people safe, punishing criminals who wreck lives so victims get justice, protecting communities from the blight that drags everyone down and upholding respect for the law that underpins our democracy These are the things that Labour will do. 30 years ago this year, the Labour shadow Home Secretary, Tony Blair, said, our party will be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. It was right then, it's right now, it's what we did then, it's what we'll do again. Over 13 years, the Conservatives have let communities down. Only Labour is the party of law and order now. Thank you very much. Jess, um, you listened in in the room. What did you make of uh, of what the Shadow Home Secretary had to say? I mean, I think one of the 
things that you know Labour's got quite a big asset in in, in Yvette Cooper in that she this is a brief that she knows absolutely inside out having been chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee and anti-social behaviour and policing and crime is one of those areas where Labour you know has traditionally fallen behind the Conservatives in a place that they need to start to make you know, significant inroads in public consciousness about how they would do things differently. Um, I think as well, it obviously comes at a time of crisis in confidence in the police for two reasons, particularly violence against women reasons and, and David Carrick and, and, and Wayne Cousins. But I think there is also a pervasive feeling, and you see this reflected in the polling, that people just don't feel like the police are responding to, you know, crimes that they, you know, when their bikes are stolen, when their houses are burgled, even if they say they have CCTV, it doesn't seem to be watched. You know, I think, you know, there's a general discontent of neighbourhood policing. And I think that that's what, you know, Vet Cooper talked about very specifically about antisocial behaviour, um, about the needs to kind of tackle those, you know, low level crimes that don't feel very low level if you're ex- experiencing them at the time. But, um, you know, to have to redistribute resources, to have a lot more more officers kind of out there who are embedded in the community. I mean, she used the kind of Happy Valley analogy where she, you know, um, you know, said she needed people who sort of intimately understood the different relationships in a community and could and, and could to tackle crime and prevention. I mean, that all sounds I, you know, it sounds all sounds very good. You know, I think we feel I feel like I've heard politicians promise that kind of more bobbies on the beat. You yeah. know, pretty much every election time that comes alongside with what she says she wants to be, which is very much more you know sort of ruthless in recruitment and vetting, checking police's social media, making sure that there's face to face interviews a lot earlier, checks on background a lot earlier. And you know, if you, you know, both of those things, you know, how do they quite how do they match up? You obviously want both in an ideal world, but how do you get all that extra recruitment in? get people out onto the streets who know their area intimately and also keep those very high standards which have slipped. And one of the questions that she got quite a lot at the event was on how Labour would pay for the 13,000 new neighbourhood police officers and PCOs. Uh, Do you think that she was convincing um, in her answers? I think that there's always, you know, this this is a sort of Labour administrators who are trying to be very very disciplined on spending and that's Rachel Reeves you know that's that they did a party political broadcast last night where that was basically the whole thrust of it <laughs> um uh and and you know there's there's no there's there's new money there's not much new money for practically anything um at the at the moment you know that Labour are promising and so therefore you know shadow cabinet ministers have had to find ways of kind of working out how they would redistribute existing resources hers has come through savings that police forces could make if they were mandated to work together on procurement decision. This, she says, she estimates that at about three hundred million. I mean, there is there are question marks, and it was raised by journalists in the room, and never quite got to the bottom of it. Which was that that sum doesn't necessarily match up with exactly with how many police officers and particularly specials you'd have to recruit, recruit and, and train. So there's a question mark over it there. But ultimately, while you're in opposition, all you need to be able to really say is, you know, if you've got a You've got a plan and you have to sound credible and you're not actually, you're not actually in there, you know, asking the exchequer for money yet. So um, not I think yet. she gave a reason, you know, an, a good enough answer <laughs> on, on that. And I think, you know, as you say, it was, you know, primarily pitched as a, you know, a serious attack on the Conservatives' record on crime, kind of capturing where the public are at on it. I mean, do you think that for Labour, the issue of law and order is really kind of up for grabs? Can they claim the mantle as as the party that has the answers on this? I think that there's, I I certainly think there's a big opportunity for them because I think people really feel that that is something that has been degraded by austerity, you know, one of the things that has been really degraded by austerity, that and, you know, uh, amongst other public services. And, you know, I think the polling on some of this stuff is always astonishing now with Labour having more credibility on those very typical conservative areas, places like, you know, on crime or, or even on immigration, which is the other sort of big 
beat that Yvette Cooper's got and the other one where she has to kind of try and maintain a Labour credibility on it. And I, and I do wonder if that's really, and, and we can say this about anything to do with polling and Labour, if that's anything really to do with what they're doing and rather that people are just kind of losing faith in the Conservatives' ability to handle the issue just because they've got to 12, 12 years and they still have these these complaints, these, these, these angers about those issues. I think this is the big question, isn't it? How yeah. much is it push factor? How much pull? Um, I guess we'll see in, in 18 months' time. I mean, Kath, just carrying on on the kind of significance of Cooper's argument, mm. you know, framing Labour as the party of law and justice, there was a particularly strong focus on reform um, mm. in her speeches, you, you know, would expect a big focus on prevention, echoing Blair's famous uh, line many years ago now, the focus on improved vetting and standards for, for police officers, neighbourhood policing, as we've talked about. What do you think that focus on reform says about Labour Party thinking? I'm not sure it is about that. I, I, you know, the the tough on crime, tough on the cause of crime. I just neither party really disagree with that. It's the same thing. You have to sound tough, <laughs> um, but at the same time, sound compassionate that you want to solve the underlying issues about it. So she talked a lot about uh, mental health and the strain of other services we're putting on uh, police if you're having to wait in A and E with somebody who uh, is going through a mental health crisis. So a lot of it is, as Jess was saying, it's just about sounding like a home secretary in waiting mm-hmm. and sounding like you are the voice of change. Um, I'm not sure that actually, and, and one of the people in the room was Tom Windsor, who's the former chief inspector of um, police, um, sort of ombudsman. And he said, this isn't actually that radical. Mm. Um, you know, you're talking about increasing numbers by a bit. You're talking about you've already got some powers to do some of the reforms that you're talking about. What's radical about what you're talking about? And she pushed back on that. But I kind of agree with Jess. I mean, that's all you really need to do with the brief is is until you get in there and you can actually start working on the detail of it, it's difficult to come up with a really detailed implementation plan on how you're going to start making changes on this. Tom Windsor also pushed her on, wouldn't one of the ways of making savings to reduce down the number of uh, different police forces that we've got across England and Wales. So yes, I think she she is probably doing the most sensible thing that you can do with the brief right now. And that slight change of focus, uh, you know, jumping on on Happy Valley as a as a, <laughs> uh, a way of sort of drilling home that um, you know that line, but talking about neighbourhood policing. But I mean, again, we've seen all this kind of talk before. The really key issue is, she, and she she did start to touch on this as well. Obviously, she put a lot of blame at the door of the Conservative Party and uh, particular Conservative ministers, without necessarily naming them all. But she also did touch on in sort of structural or uh, you know inherent problems within the Home Office or within the system more generally. And I think that's going to be the the key challenge for her when she gets into the department. It's been an area we focused on a lot. What are the sort of problems in the Home Office that that you need to tackle uh, that are sort of deeper? Um, And I think there it's very difficult to to get into the detail and to the weeds on any of that while you're in opposition. Okay, so let's move on to the other Labour Party story this week, um, Keir Starmer's announcement on Jeremy Corbyn. Jess, is that a potentially even bigger moment for the Labour Party? I think it's 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 kind of it's a big moment in in a very in in a narrow way, which sounds like a strange way of putting it. But there's I think it tells it says a lot for the the future of the left in the late in 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 Labour and, you know, Rishi Sunak's had two big attack lines kind of cut off really this week. One about, you know, they potentially being in the pocket of the SNP and another about, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, the potential comeback of Jeremy Corbyn and Keir's defence of him while he was sat in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Islington North is is going to be a really big moment for the, for the future of the left in Labour because 
should Jeremy Corbyn decide to run as an independent, and we understand that that's that's very likely that he will, um, if he doesn't, he will pursue the formal process of trying to get adopted as a Labour candidate, but that won't happen now. um, And he'll be blocked by the NEC and the kind of formality of it. So if he does that, then, you know, Groups like Momentum and other members of the Labour Party or MPs who have got who have got loyalty to Jeremy Corbyn will have to face, you know, will have a big dilemma about whether to campaign for him, which would usually see them, you know, if you can if you if you campaign for a candidate against a Labour candidate, that would see you suspended. Momentum could be prescribed. Probably that would mean that they will decide not to, but there will be plenty that will cause a big split in the organisation. I think the future of it is very unclear. Keir Starmer's control of the Labour Party machinery. And the way that that's been achieved in such a short time, I think, is a is a pretty remarkable feat, actually. And um, you know how they he now has his allies controlling pretty much every lever of power in the party, the control they're exerting on selections, including some very controversial dis- decisions on on selections and some candidates that they're excluding. You know, you can argue that that means that we're seeing a very identical set of people being selected as candidates um, for, for, for the Labour Party, usually in kind of a professional class, um, people who are former councillors, people who, you know, absolutely wouldn't deviate from the party line. But, you know, if you speak to people in Labour, they'll say there have been a lot of people, and I think many of us would agree this is true on both sides, who really should not have been selected as MPs over the, you know, that we've seen over the course of the last few years. And that is across the political spectrum. I mean, that is not nothing that's, you know, doesn't really have anything to do with the Labour left in particular. And so there has to be a really tight quality control. His opponents would say, well, you've actually let a few people through who agree with you, who there are, you know, dubious things about. And all of that comes to the question about what would the shape of a kind of future Labour Party look like if Labour do get a significant majority at the next election? And, you know, the other attack line that's possible if Labour get a very small majority is if you have a sort of group of MPs who are very hostile to Starmer, who are able to kind of dictate whether the you know his government is able to pass things, especially controversial things that they might not like. Um, he obviously wants to avoid that as much as he possibly can. And there are, you know... Behind the scenes, there are, of course, people close to Keir on the the right of the party, for want of a better word, who would love an excuse to throw more people out of the party. Yeah. And Corbyn gives them an opportunity for that that to happen. And I mean, you know, Diane Abbott's already been out defending Corbyn this morning on Twitter, elsewhere. Um, you know, what are the downsides for Starmer of this decision? You know, is there a risk that, for instance, you know, he, he loses kind of lots of party members or that actually he reinvigorates some of his kind of enemies um, in the party or, or actually is the prize much bigger than that? Yeah, I think the people that there are certainly you know people on the left of the party and the PLP who have who really feel they're back that you know that they're that they're being watched mm. and that they and that there is any excuse to suspend them or find a way of not letting them stand at the next election and you know they're probably right to be quite paranoid about that and and I think he has stepped back from doing that at the despite the urging of some other people in the shadow cabinet that he should be more hardline particularly when there was that some of them signing that stop the war statement on U- Russia and Ukraine so they have been very careful and very watchful but i think you know this is i think some of them will see and and Diane Abbott is obviously one of them we've heard less from some other close allies of Corbyn like John McDonnell who see this act as so egregious that they can do nothing but speak out and I think that there are plenty of Labour members and supporters and activists who campaign for Corbyn who expect them to speak out and who want and who are prepared to defend Corbyn um, and his legacy. And we've heard lots of talk about a Labour reshuffle it's been being rumoured for for quite some time 
what do you think this kind of decision might making might mean for a reshuffle um, and indeed when might it happen yeah and i think that we w- we probably will see one reasonably soon and i think that's one of the reasons why you the ifg and plenty of others are suddenly <laughs> seeing lots of great policy speeches coming about out by uh, <laughs> labor cabinet members selling out their stores which 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 is always very welcome and so i think you know i think that there are there are you know without being too mean they be any names there are a lot of people in this, there are a few people in the shadow cabinet people where particularly on briefs that might be considered to be important for a next Labour government who are not quite in the right place or punching above, you know, not really, you know, pulling their weight or making the kind of inroads, you know, in raising their profile that that Starmer might like. I think there's also, I think it's actually probably more about there are, there are good people outside mm-hmm. who maybe weren't, who, who I think, it would be quite a good idea to bring in the names that often come up at Darren Jones, who chairs yeah. the business select committee. Yeah. I think, you know, perhaps he was less, you know, might've been less interested in it before, but now, you know, probably, probably would be interested in it now. There's also Sarah Jones, um, who's sort of seen as a real rising star who they really rate. You know, there's also always talk about uh, whether there should be comebacks for some of those people like Hillary Benn or Dan Jarvis. And Dan Jarvis doesn't actually even have a front bench role now since he's given up being the mayor of South Yorkshire. So there are people who you could fit in. And especially, you know, there's a reorganisation of government departments mm, and, yeah. and there is and that, and there will have to be some sort of shuffle to reflect that. I think Chion Wero as well is, is someone who's been talked about who could potentially head up, you know, kind of science secretary, science, science secretary of state to, to, to be that opposite number as well. So there is there's obviously some reorganisation to be done. Kath, uh, let's talk about what stage we're at in the electoral cycle. I mean, we were talking a little bit in relation to Yvette's speech about, you know, Labour kind of being in criticising the government mode. But mm. when are they going to start moving into kind of setting out a more detailed policy platform? Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, work backwards from the final date that you can have a general election is December 2024 with a, an election in January. And I mean, it seems crazy, the idea of having an election campaign over Christmas. So I'm I'm um, not considering that. So it's more likely to be earlier in autumn in 2024, um, which is much nearer, um, you know, this side of, of 2023 than uh, it has felt for a long while. So uh, this conference season um, is coming autumn is going to be huge for the political parties and particularly for Labour, because that is their opportunity to set out prior to a manifesto, their key policy platforms. Uh, there is a lot that you can do of just salience issues, as we saw with Yvette today, of just kind of setting out your sort of general positions on things, a uh, few key eye-catching policies and so forth. But you start to get to a point where you need to be showing a sort of holistic platform for government, um, something that joins up and, and, as we've been talking about, something that makes sense uh, in terms of the numbers. So that's all really important. But, I mean... Starmer's been on this journey, what we've just been talking about. Uh, yes, a lot of it was the very real problem of anti-Semitism and sort of drawing a line under that. But it is also, as we've seen from polling, um, Starmer has had a big job of trying to show that there is distance between his um, Labour Party and the Labour Party of old because, um, you know, all the polling suggested that uh, Corbyn and, and the potential Corbyn government was an impediment to them. So it is also, and that's why they've gone so strong in the last day or two, is reminding the public we have changed. Any political party that's had a, a shocker in opposition has to go through that kind of, of um, process. So, um, the, you know, I, I would I would imagine that he wants to then move on from that because that has been a lot of his focus mm-hmm. in the last sort of couple of years. And really, I was talking about it earlier after the Yvette, um thing. It has been quite a remarkable 
um, sort of turnaround that he's done in terms of, you know, you look at the the years of Kinnock, um, Smith and then Blair, um, that was a very different Labour Party by the time they got to the 83 general election. It had been, you know, the whole experience of the 1970s, whereas um, you had the sort of Miliband years of, of opposition, but really it was the um, a change in, in Labour after Corbyn came in in 2015 uh, through to, to 2019. So um, Starmer's had that job to, to kind of turn the, the fortunes around. Now it really does need to be a focus on if you're going to win the next general election, even if it's just because the Conservatives, um, you know, are, are failing to win the, the sort of um, to capture the um, the public's imagination, and then you're you're almost winning by default, which is the narrative that surrounds Starmer at the moment. Even so, you've got to set up a credible policy platform, and um, that's going to be where they need to put the detail work in. Indeed. Okay, so let's uh, end with a quick look ahead to next week. Um, recess will be over, um, Parliament will be back, and Rishi Sunak has got four shiny new government departments up and running. Um, Jess, what would you say the mood is in government right now? Well, there are two. Well, there's a really big thing on the horizon next week, which is which we think is a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that will um, if that is something that materialises over the weekends on the margins of the Munich Security Summit when he's talking to EU leaders, which is, we, we think it will come early in the early part of next week. And that will set in train a big new frontier for Rishi Sunak yeah. and what that means with with his party, the Brexiteers in his party, potentially what that means on whatever kind of intervention Boris Johnson might need to might seek to stage on that depending on what the shape of the deal looks like and so you know we've seen Rishi Sunak acting you know very have you know giving a lot of concessions to his party when they've seen rebellions coming down the track he's kept you know he's he's been amenable and he's made you know compromises on the on the on the less sort of what's yeah. seen as less important stuff I think in order to give himself as much kind of power as possible on, on this. And do you think he is going, you know, if, if what is rumoured is true, that they're going to make a compromise on, on the role of the courts, do you think he has the kind of the power to to push that compromise through and to, you know, get his uh, the, some of the more rebellious bits of the Tory backbenchers on board? I mean, I think, well, there's practical question marks over whether you might, whether you will actually need, need to vote to. You may yeah, not need. need a vote. And if you do need a vote, you will be able to pass it because Labour is likely to pass a sensible compromise, um, you know, if one emerges. But I think that Rishi Sunak is always going to have this mandate problem, which is mm. that he doesn't have one from the country. He doesn't have one from the party. He doesn't, he only has it from his MPs. And if he's forced to push through something so important on the back of Labour votes, not on the back of the votes of his own party, mm. then there are obviously questions about, you know, what mandate he actually holds and to be able to do that. And, you know, I think that's, that will be something that's that's obviously playing playing on him. Yeah, I mean, there's the technical question of whether or not he needs a vote to get it through, but then there's also the political question, and that could be go in either direction. If you think that the best way to avoid a fight is to avoid a vote, fine. On the other hand, if you feel like you're John Major, you know, 1993, you need a vote to assert your authority, um, then you know they can find a reason to to, to have, have, have and one. Rishi's done that before, right? He did that on international aids when he sort of found he thought he, yeah. he'd found a way yeah. to win it that that would that would kind of bolster the authority to do that, and so he held one even though it was you know arguably not necessary. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I mean, the really happen. the really interesting test for me is whether or not he ends up in a Liz Truss fracking motion um, <laughs> situation oh, where they declare yeah. it a confidence motion because that is his ultimate power. That, is to, yeah. as we've just been talking about when will the general election come and can 
this government hold itself together through to autumn 2024? And I think that is the really big question is, you know, can the Conservative Party survive that long? And this is potentially the sort of first test of that, if, if that's what you decide you needed to do to assert your authority. And then the next big date in the diary is the budget. Um, Jess, uh, budgets shift electoral dials. Um, what might be we be looking for? I think that they, you know the briefing coming out the Treasury is very much that they hope that this will be a, a, a non sort of shifting yeah. budget that they want it to be a, a low key one. Um, that's not the idea that lots of Conservative MPs have who want to see. Um, who want there to see at least a signal towards tax cuts, which we may see. We might see some signals. We might see that restoration of the promise that Rishi Sunak made a year or so ago to to, to start lowering taxes next year. But obviously, the the primary concern, and I think this is, you know, the Treasury will constantly say this when you're asking about it. The primary concern of the country is inflation, mm. um, and that is will be the you know the absolute focus of the budget, and that of also has has knock on effects for what people can expect in public sector pay settlements for this year as well. So there are big you know big questions marks around that, and mm. and also big divisions. And Kath, um, a big select committee date in the diary next week. Well, I mean, that's big for IFG anyway. So Laurie Magnus, the Independent Advisor on Ministerial Interest, is up before the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, PACAC. How excited are you on a scale oh, of one so to ten? so excited, yeah. Um, yeah, it, look, this is a big one because he's. Uh, we've not seen a lot of him. We don't know um, this guy. We've seen him mostly in the way in which he's advised Rishi Sunak already, particularly over the Sahawi stuff. Um, and you have some pretty big uh, integrity investigations going on, not least uh, Dominic Raab, which is actually being conducted by um, somebody else, Adam Tolley KC. I'm managing to get KC. I was going to say, well done. Thank you. It rolled Thank off the you. tongue. So, uh, so big question for me is whether or not um, Laurie Magnus is going to get involved in that, because actually it is primarily a ministerial code question. It isn't the ministerial code references don't bully people, but it also says you need to treat people with consideration, respect to behave professionally and so forth. So there's a much wider sort of set of criteria that Sunak could use to decide whether or not Rob stays in government. It isn't just did you um, sort of formally commit um, bullying as recognised under employment law. Um, so, so yeah, so question marks about that. It's just been announced that he will be doing an investigation into Islamophobia claims about the uh, Conservative Party surrounding Nuzgani. You know, it's the same questions that we had when Christopher Guite was in place. What really are the powers to be able to initiate investigations? Um, you know, what muscle uh, does he have to do the job and his confidence? But the other thing that I'm going to be looking out for is, I mean, Christopher Guite was the master of saying a lot of words, and, you know, <laughs> using a lot of words really, they were yeah, to, to say to not very much them. at all. So it, does, does he answer the questions more directly or are we going to see yet another person in front of a select committee where you're just sort of tearing your hair out of them, not being able to just talk normally? <laughs> Find out on next week's IFG yeah. podcast. <laughs> um, okay, I think that's all we've got time for uh, today. So many thanks to Kath Haddon and to Akash Porn, who I rudely failed to say goodbye to at the end of his first session. Thank you, Akash. And especially thank you to Jess Elgert. Um, and thank you all for being with us. Uh, thanks for everyone listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major platforms. And as ever, please do leave us a review. If you missed it, you can watch our Yvette Cooper event at our website. And while you're there, please do sign up for our next event next week, which is going to be previewing the spring budget. 
and check out our explainer, setting out all the questions and answers you need to know about what's going on in Scotland. Well, as we've come to expect, that recess week was anything but quiet. Let's hope the weekend brings a moment of calm before Parliament returns next week. See you then. Thank you.